Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to look at your word and ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 28. We've been looking at the curses that God was going to send on Israel and that he was their protection and that he would back off because of them not listening. So we're going to start at verse 23. Give you ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Does the plowman plow all day to sow? Does he open and break the clods of his, of his ground? When he has made plain the face thereof, does he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For his God does instruct him to discernment and does teach him. For the fitches are not threshed with with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not even be threshed it, threshing it, nor beat it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also comes forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. All right, so here we see what God is calling to the people. He says, listen, <laughs> listen and hear, uh, because they have not been listening and hearing up to this point in time. And he's going to give them basically a parable, a story, an illustration. And he says, listen and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. So he's trying to go, I want to tell you something and open your ears. <laughs> and we've talked about this. How many times do people not hear? Uh, we do it oftentimes in our own life, but you know, there's people who just don't even want to hear. And they'll tell you things, well, I just don't understand God's word, or I didn't understand the message, or I didn't understand this. Well, you know, as my dad said, get the, you know, get the bubble gum out of your ears and listen, you know, it's, uh, uh, or the peanut butter, you know, whatever's stopping your ears, get it out of there and listen to God. And he's saying, listen, he goes, and then he gives him the little story. Does the plowman plow all day to sow? Does he open and break the clods of his ground? In other words, is he wasting his time or is he doing something? Uh, and ideally, yes, he, he, you know, he doesn't spend all day plowing the field, breaking it up so to plant the seed and then just say, oh, oh look, what, look what I've done. I'm all done. I'm all done for the season. Uh, and he's making a point here. Many people don't even prepare the ground of their life, their heart, whatever. And he's saying, open it up and then put the word in <laughs> as, he go, as he goes in. You know, and sometimes people will start to plow their heart but won't listen. Usually they don't even plow their heart at all. Yeah, and that's where Jesus gave the parable of the four soils of the heart with the, the sower. Some hit the hard ground that it's so hard that the seed doesn't even go in and, and the birds have a field day on it. Some actually hit some rocky soil, started to grow, but the rocks choked it out. And there he's saying the plowman gets the field ready. And when he does, he's going to do something with it. He's not just out there. And that's what that first one, does the plowman plow all day to sow? Answer is obvious, yes. <laughs> He, he's not going out there, let me go spend all day this week you know, plowing my fields and we'll just look at them all season long. You know, oh, don't they look pretty? They've got nice, beautiful furrows. I, I made nice straight furrows. They're deep. Nothing's growing, but 
Yeah, and the answer on this one obviously is yes. He's he's doing he's doing it to sow, and it says in verse five, when he has made plain the face thereof, does he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? And basically, he plants what's supposed to be planted. You know what what season it is. Yeah, uh, no, fitches are not birds. Uh, fitches are basically any kind of small grain in, the, in this particular uh, uh, word uh, <laughs> that is being used there. It's a, it's a small grain. Um, and it says, you know, the fitches, the cumin, the principal wheat, the barley, the rye, and everything is put in its time. And fitches basically is an is a anise-type a product, and I'm not a I'm not a planter or a farmer or anything, but I do understand a little bit that there's certain things that you plant in the winter, some things you plant in the summer, some things you plant in the spring and the fall, and if you plant the wrong thing, you may or may not get a crop. More likely, not get a crop, and if you plant the right thing, you tend to get the crop. If you plant something that needs a lot of heat and you plant it in Winter, you're probably not going to get a very good crop. If you have something that's planted that needs the coolness and you plant it in the summer, you're not going to get it. And this is what God's saying. The plowman gets the field ready. The farmer gets the field ready, and then he plants the right crop. And oftentimes, this is true for us as Christians. Sometimes we plant the wrong seed in our, in our heart. And... This is why we're supposed to be so careful. What do we pay attention to? What are we thinking about? What are we planting in our life? And this is why as we grow with God and we start to really get to know him, we start to get more and more sensitive about what we put in our mind and in our hearts. Uh, we can't do the same things we used to do. We can't read the same books or listen to the same music or watch the same movie or TV shows and all this because all of a sudden we look at them and say, oh, yuck, <laughs> this, is, this is not going to give me a good harvest. And so he says, watch what your harvest of what you're putting out and put the right things out. Um, and then he goes in verse for the God has instructed him to discretion to teach him. The farmer has learned from God what to what to plant and this is for us we need to be in God's word we need to be in fellowship with one another and that's probably the greatest way to truly develop right behaviors and right actions is as we deal with one another and all of a sudden we start talking with one another and sometimes it's pretty amazing you don't really understand something but you start to try to explain it to somebody and all of a sudden the lights go on and it's like, oh, that was what was wrong with it or that was what was good about it maybe. But you know, the wonderful thing, and it's been said over and over, if you want to really learn something, teach it, instruct. You know, because all of a sudden, things start to make sense. When you study it, you analyze it, you try to explain it to others, all of a sudden things become, oh, wow, I never saw it that way. And a lot of times it's happening while you're teaching. Uh, it's not always in the study that you, that you get it. It's while you're teaching it and God says, okay, here you go. And it might be through interaction. It might be just God's spirit walking in and touching you as you're, as you're expressing it. 
And here he says, God teaches the farmer when to plant. Now, obviously, he doesn't go up to every farmer and said, okay, you plant this, you plant this, you plant this. But over time, he's taught different people different things, and they teach each other, and you learn what doesn't grow. If I was somebody who was into gardening and didn't have a black thumb, I would probably learn and care what gets planted in the spring, what gets planted in the, in the, in the summer and all of that. Uh, I'm sure that people listening to me that know the products will say, well, this is what you do. I kind of know that uh, pumpkins are planted for the fall. <laughs> all right, why? Because that's when they harvest them, right, <laughs> around fall. Uh, and I know that most of the wheat seem to be summer, but I guess there are winter wheats. I've heard of winter wheat. So, you know, we learn to plant what God has said. And this even goes for our own life. What should we plant in our life? If we plant the wrong things, we get the wrong results. And God is saying, I want you to learn to plant the right seed. Uh, you know, in Romans 12, we're told that we're to change our mind by the watching of the, of the word. We get into God's word. We talk about God's word. We edify one another with God's word. And we start really getting to the place where we start looking at our life and we start recognizing how ugly parts of it are. And we start getting rid of those parts. And then God shows us more of the word to clean out more of our heart. And will we ever have it down pat? Nope. You know, uh, Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all else who can know it. And God does. We don't. And we share this all the time. God keeps shining the light brighter and brighter into our heart. And it gets distressing at some times when you think you're getting it all together. And God says, nope, there's a lot more garbage down here. Just look a little deeper. And you get that out of there. And God says, okay, let's shine the light. You know, he doesn't even give us a little, a very long to appreciate the progress we're making. He does. He lets us have a little bit of, okay, here's a little breather. Okay, now let's shine that light down there a little deeper. Uh, but you know, in the long run, it prepares us for heaven. It prepares us for the rewards of heaven. Because heaven's going to be a place where we don't have that dark, deep, bitter heart. It'll be totally gone and we'll have God's way of looking at things. And I'm wondering if for some people it's going to be a shock when all of a sudden their heart is changed and they go from deep depravity that they thinking is okay to righteousness as opposed to those who've worked at getting things out. Or will they have to learn over time? I don't know. I really wonder sometime about what heaven is going to be like and how we're preparing those of us who prepared and walked with God, what will be different for us. Because there's got to be some differences. You know, there's got to be some differences because God says there's going to be rewards. And so we're going to be up there. And I've, and I've looked at it many times, like I've said many times. You know, I kind of picture these little studio apartments at the base of the, of the, of the, of the palace with, you know, bigger and bigger rooms the higher up you go to somebody getting the penthouse. You know, half, half the top floor or something. Maybe not that much, but, you know, how much did they let God do in their life? And uh, those who get saved and just narrowly get through, you know, they're in those little studios. Now, they're going to be happy to be in heaven. You know, they'd be happy camping out in heaven. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have rooms? <laughs> Come on over to my house for dinner. I've got, I've got a dining room over here and a living room over here. And by the way, you want to spend the night? I've got three or four bedrooms in the back. You know, God has given me 
a suite of rooms. And that literally is what it means when Jesus said, I go to prepare a, a place for you, and he talks about mansions. It's not like we think about it in our day. You know, big, huge buildings, but they are suites of rooms within the palace or the, or the home. Those were called your mansions. You had your suite of rooms, whether it was just one or two rooms to, you know, a huge, huge flat. <laughs> and Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you've got to think about this. God created the heavens and the earth in, three, in six days, and he's been spending millennia fixing up our home for eternity. It's got to be pretty special. You know, uh, I can't imagine, you know, as great and beautiful as the world is, created in six days, what kind of place is he preparing for us to dwell in that takes millennia to make? And they ha when, you, when you compare it to the wonder of our world made in six days, uh, just, that's something to look forward to, I think. Wow, God, what, 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 are you, what have you planned? And it will be planned for each one of us to our specific likes and dislikes that are, that are righteous and, and holy because everybody has different likes and dislikes that aren't necessarily bad. Uh, you know, somebody likes you know, going outdoors and hunting and they would dress their rooms up with you know, you know, fishing and hunting and others were books and study and you know, God is going to make individual homes for, those, for his followers that are going to be geared toward their likes and dislikes. And you know, it's going to be an amazing thing. You know, and I sometimes wonder what heaven will be like. And I heard a, a, a pastor one time you know, speak on the idea that he pictured heaven as being a time to go around and swap your testimony with, a, with one another. And I think that would be a cool, you know, cool idea because I like hearing about how people get saved and how God has used them. And there's enough people, you could be kept busy for quite a while in eternity just swapping stories. Hey, did you get, did you get John's you know, uh, testimony? Or did you get uh, Jeremiah's testimony? Did you get you know, uh, Samantha's testimony? You, know, you really got to hear that one. That was a really good thing that God did over there. You know, swapping stories back and forth. That would be great. You know, and if that's really true, I'll wait to get the disciples and the apostles. I'll go find the other people first. And after everybody's done talking to the, them, I'll go talk to them. Because I know most of their story anyway. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I know a lot of their story. Now, I'm sure there's a lot more to their story than was in here. But, you know, the line will be too long there. <laughs> I don't know there'll be lines in heaven, but you know what I mean. They have, they're going to be the one that everybody wants to talk to. And I've said it so many times. One of the greatest things that I, can, that I have found is talking to especially new Christians. They see everything with a different set of eyes. They see the Word of God with a different set of eyes. They haven't been taught how to say the things and how to, to respond in just the right spiritual way. And they see things that many times are not seen, and it's kind of fun talking to them. And then they spend enough time in church and they start learning, well, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're supposed to say, this is how you read this verse. And that newness and that flavor dwindles over time. And we start just thinking like everybody else thinks unless we're careful and listening to the Holy Spirit. But, you know, it's, it's easy to say, okay, well, I've heard 28 sermons on this verse, and I think this is what that verse means. <laughs> they must know what they're talking about. And the new person goes, wow, wow, look what this says. And they say something totally different 
And it's like, you know what? That makes sense. You know, not a problem. And we need to have that wonder at God's word, the wonder at what God does for us, because it is so easy for us to get jaded with God. Well, God, you know, you've, you've done this for me so many times now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ceasing to see the amazement of the parking space right up front, the, the provision for my bills that came in, you know, today, the, you know, whatever it might be, and we start just taking it for granted, because that's what God does. He takes care of me. You know, and I wonder, do the sheep take for granted the shepherd? Probably. You know, the shepherd's there. He takes care of us every day. He leads us to water. He leads us to the food. He, he's protecting us. You know, and I think they don't keep in mind the awesomeness that the shepherd's there. And we do the same thing with God so often. You know, oh, God, yeah, another day. <laughs> you, you, you met my needs. Okay, thank you. Or, or not even you, my needs have been met. <laughs> uh, and forget about God altogether. And it becomes really easy to do that. And we need to be very careful. The farmer plants the field, he's, and he prepares it and cares for it. And weeds it and, and takes, can make sure that it gets watered and all that stuff. And he listens to the way God. And verse 27 says, For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, Neither is a cartwheel turned upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not even be threshing, threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, but nor bruise it with his horse. Then, So he's saying each type of grain is harvested and treated the way it's supposed to be treated. Now this change just to something we might know more about. Uh, you wouldn't take tomatoes and, and, and put them underneath the crushing wheel of a, to, uh, that you put the weed under to make flour. Uh, the tomato just wouldn't do very well unless you're trying to make tomato sauce. And even then you wouldn't do it that way. Uh, so he's saying each one of these things are done in a certain way. Some of the wheat was just tossed up, so the chaff would go, some of the grains were tossed up, the, shaft would, the, the chaff would blow away, and then they would break the kernels and, and use it. Uh, most of the corn are just kind of bruised so you can get inside it. And he's saying, you know, you're not going to take the, I, lo I love this, the cumin, little tiny, tiny seeds, and go throw it under the, the, the wheel to crush it. Matter of fact, you usually use cumin as a seed. <laughs> All right. So he says, you're not going to do that. You're not going to take a staff and beat, beat the uh, anise. Um, so he's saying, everything is treated the way it's supposed to be treated. And God does this with us. He treats us the way we need to be treated. And this is the wonderful thing, God, and we've said this so many times, God has an individual plan for each person. All right, so God treats each, each one of us with a personalized plan. And this is one of the wonderful things. This is why we can't look at another person and say, God, why do they get away with it and I can't get away with it? Uh, because God says, they're, they're, they're not as far along as you are and I want you to learn this and I'm teaching them something else. And this is so important and why we need to be careful to not judge each other. God has a personal plan for each of us. He has a program that he is teaching us because he's preparing us for our life. He's going, 
you've got this test coming up tomorrow, you need to learn this. That, their test isn't coming up for another year, so don't worry about what they're learning. <laughs> their, their test is something totally different. And this whole idea that each of the seeds were handled differently, God teaches us differently. And then verse 29, also comes forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. I love this. What comes forth from God, it says, is wonderful in counsel. Extraordinary. <laughs> His counsel is extraordinary and wonderful and excellent in his working or done well. You know, and this is the great thing, to watch God work in your life. Or even to watch God work in other people's life is fun too. Just make sure he's still working in your own life and you're seeing it. But the greatest blessing for me as a pastor is watching how God is changing people's lives. You know, and saying, wow, God, look where they've gone. Look where, look where they've made it to. They've come so far in their growth with Jesus, with you, God. They've gone so far. Now, the flip side of it is really bad, too, when you see them fail and you're going, oh, God, how, how can I help them? How can I, how can I do, do, to, do, do things something better? And, you know, there's that blessing and that, and that sorrow. You know, the great blessing when you see people making the right decisions and then the sorrow when you say, oh, no, God, no. Could I have done something different? Could I have taught something different? Could I emphasize different? I don't know. You know and you can't get too, in too in introspective about that. You have to be very careful because each person's responsible for what they do with God's word. And that's one of the things I've said. My job as a pastor is real easy. I teach God's word. What you all do with it is up to you. And many times I'm teaching myself anyway. <laughs> Sometimes I'm the one that needs what I'm teaching just as much as anybody that I'm talking to. And so we look at this and we say, wow, God, what a wonderful God you are and your counsel is so great. You're so wonderful. You're so blessed and you bless us. Chapter 29. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add you year to year. Let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be upon unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against you round about, and will lay siege against you with a mount, and I will raise forts against you, and you shall be brought down, and shall speak out of the ground, and your voice shall be low out of the dust, and, and your voice shall be as one that, that has a familiar spirit out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of your strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as, as the chaff that passes away. Yea, it shall be as an instant suddenly. And you shall be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquakes and with great noise and storm and tempest and flame of devouring flower, fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munitions, and that distress her shall be as a dream in the night. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he eats, but he wakes, and his soul is empty. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he drinks, but awakes, and behold, he is faint. And his soul hath an appetite, 
so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. All right. So in this chapter, we're going to look at it, and it's a curse and a warning to Israel. And Ariel is a name, again, for Jerusalem. And it literally means the Lion of God. But we know because it says the city that David dwelt in, and then it ends this section of that chapter with fighting against Mount Zion. So we know that he's talking about Jerusalem. And this word for, for Jerusalem is used mostly by Isaiah. Ezra uses it once. Uh, but it's just a, another one of those poetic names for Israel, uh, for Jerusalem. Israel has a lot of names. Jerusalem has a lot of names. Part of it's been is that it's been around as long as it has. But anytime you start dealing with poetic words, poetry starts bringing out all kinds of uh, pet names and stuff for, for, for things. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, when husbands and wives start talking to each other and they use, you know, sweetie or babe or, you know, uh, there's an old joke about an old man who's, you know, in his 70s, and he keeps calling his wife honey and sweetie, and the guy goes, uh, his friend goes, you know, it's so nice to hear people talk that way about, about their wives after so many years. He goes, well, to be honest with you, I forgot her name years ago. Yeah. But, you know, we do have this idea that the pet names, the, the names that are just ours, and we're told in Revelation that God, uh, Jesus is going to give each one of us a name that's known by him and us. Yeah, just a, just a pet name. That, that name is just used when you're alone, whatever that might be. Hopefully it's a good name. Hopefully it's not lazy and worthless. Hopefully it's wonderful and beloved. And I'm sure that's going to be a good name. And I'm sure it's going to be something that is, is related to the way we've lived our life for him. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it'll be an edifying name <laughs> and not a not a negative name. <laughs> but I sometimes wonder about it. <laughs> sometimes I do wonder about it, though. If somebody's leading a life that's not has a lot of good following of God, their their pet name may be not that great. Uh, I really hope it's something for me like faithful, you know. Uh, work or whatever it might be, something that's very valuable. But I also know how much I miss the opportunities I'm supposed to have. So I could get, you know, miss or loser, you know, just as easily. Yeah, I don't think Jesus is going to be given those kinds of I don't think so. But, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, I just wonder. Yeah. And I believe, I truly believe that it'll be a good yeah. name. Beloved. Yeah, you're loved. Yeah, that's good enough. You know, and I and I and I do believe that's what it's going to be. You know, it may not. You know, there'll be those who are called faithful, good worker, whatever. And then there are going to be those who just have the simple, you were loved. Well, and that's why when you start seeing the southern kingdom or Israel or Jacob or Judah, you know, you want to know, is he talking about the southern kingdom? Is he talking about the northern kingdom? Is he talking about Israel as a whole? Is he talking about just part of it? And this is why study and being taught is important. 
Because you can learn all these things. You can go into enough of the books and find enough people to study and say, you know, what does this mean? But it's nice when somebody can just tell you, I've been studying it for years and this is what it means. Yeah. See, that's why for a long, long time I would read it every couple pages and I didn't understand it, you know. Mm-hmm. Because reading it, you know, it's hard. You know? Yep. But he says, woe to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, the city where David dwelt. Woe. Catastrophe is coming. And he says, add you year to year, let them kill the sacrifice. So this is the idea of you just keep doing the same things. You're doing things by rote. You're just doing them. And this happens to many Christians at times. Well, God, you know, I get up, I read my Bible, I say my three minutes of prayer to you because I don't really know what to say, but I, and I, do, I read my read my 10 minutes in the Bible, and then I get up and I do my, you know, go, go to work. I go to church on Wednesday night. I go to church Sunday morning. I go to church Sunday night. You know, God, God, I really don't want to do any of these things, but I feel I need to, so I just do this. Add year by year. Every year, people, the men of Israel had to go to Jerusalem three times a year if they were going to be good followers of God. And many of them did it because they wanted to, but many of them also did it just because. Yeah, it's Passover. I got to go to Jerusalem. Pack up, pack up the bags. I'll be gone for three weeks. Uh, and they went to they went to Jerusalem. They offered the sacrifice. They came back. Okay, check mark. Passover's done. Uh, okay, it's time to go to church. Check mark. Went to church. Yeah. And we as Christians do this quite frequently as well. Okay, God, here's my list of stuff. Check one, check two, check three, check four, whatever, whatever's on your list. And that does not mean that what you're on your checklist are bad things. Sometimes it's good just to do it because. But if you're always doing it just because, there's a problem. Uh, there are times when I go to church because I've determined I'm going to church and it's just what I do. Well, I'm the pastor, but even before I was pastor, even before I was pastor, you know, it was just something that I did. Okay, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be blessed, and most of the time I was blessed going to church. There were times I just went to church because that's what I was supposed to do, and it's nothing necessarily wrong with that attitude. I heard one of the pastors say today, uh, two days ago, you know, deciding to go to church is a good thing. Don't decide, don't wait till Sunday morning to decide, am I going to church? Because if you're deciding on Sunday morning whether you're going to go to church or not, you're probably not going. Because all kinds of things are going to come up. But if you've decided, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to go be blessed, you're going to get there, and most of the time you're going to be blessed. And there are going to be times you'll go to church, even though you didn't really want to, but you've made a decision. I try to get God's word read every day just because I need it. Sometimes I really, really want to, which is more often than not. Sometimes I'm just saying, okay, God, I, you know, I really got to get into your word. I've got to feed my soul. God, I'm trusting that you're going to give me something today. Yeah, I'm going to do it. You feed me. There's other days, I just can't wait to get into it. All right, God, let's, let's see what's here. I'm human just like everybody else, and I know how easy it is to get wrapped up. The day you sleep in and you miss the Bible reading, or you make time to do the Bible reading anyway, 
and sacrifice something else. Um, but you know, here he's saying you add year for year. You just keep doing the ritual. And this is part of what Israel did so often. It was just ritual. I've got to go to church. It's Passover. I've got to go to the synagogue. It's the it's Yom Kippur. I've got to go to the I've got to go to the synagogue. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. I've got to go to the tab, go to go to Jerusalem and worship. Just do it. It's what I have to do. Don't really want to. It's just what I do. Or I might even want to do it, but it's just something I have to do. And this is something we've got to be careful of. Does our walk with God just become ritual? Or am I doing it because God and I want to be together? Ultimately, that's the reason. And I don't want to go so far to say, don't read the Bible, don't come to church if you're not doing it for the right reason, because at least you're getting something. God says his word does not return void. So at least if you're putting something in there, there's something to be drawn upon. But it really needs to get beyond ritual. God, I want to serve you. I want to be in your presence. I want to get into your word. And this is where the great feeding comes. You know, if you're just doing it, God may all of a sudden give you a little kernel here and there. But when you want to get into it, it's amazing to me when I get in there and I'm going, I really want to do it. And I'm trying to read my three chapters for that, for that day. And I get about a half a chapter done. Not because it was boring, but because it was so interesting. And I got studying instead of reading. And I'm going, oh, wow, I remember. You know, and I'm all over the Bible trying to find things. And... You know, it's like, God, I thought I was trying to read, but I guess, I guess it was you and I were studying today. <laughs> you know, but, man, it was good, God. Thank you. I'm Matthew, and I like Matthew. <laughs> so he says, woe to you because you're just doing the rituals. Verse 2, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be a heaviness and a sorrow, and it shall be upon me as Ariel. So God says, I will distress if people are following God just out of ritual and out of expectation, God will send distress to them. Why? Because he wants them to turn to him. Now, for, and that's his whole purpose no matter what. Even when we're following him closely, he sends problems our way so that we will turn to him. And we've already discussed the problems he sends are in direct relationship to our trust level with him. You know, if we're really deep with God, we're going to have a pretty deep, hard trial. But all that does is drives us closer to him if, it's, if we're done it right. Now, if we're doing it in ritual, I believe God will send pretty hard temptations to somebody just walking in ritual saying, you really need me. Knock them down a few, few times. You think this ritual is what's going to, going to help you? And there's lots of churches, lots of Christians, lots of people who aren't Christians that do everything by ritual. There are certain denominations that are all about ritual. Uh, you know, when you walk in, you do this. When you sit down, you do this. When you stand up, you do this. When you, you know, and you know, you just have all these rituals. Yeah, it, and that's the problem. Ritual doesn't do anything unless you have a, you know, the relation. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the ritual as long as you understand there's a relationship behind what you're doing. My, my ritual that I do now, I've changed. But I pray first, and then I read the Bible. I used to do my daily bread and all the other stuff. I said, no, 
Like to pray first, then write. That's a good thing. That's Prayer puts you in relationship with God as I you look at the God's first, word. Because then I always ask for wisdom for me to understand it through what reason. Yep. But God will send this distress. He'll send heaviness or grieving and sorrow upon us. Why? Because he's trying to drive us to him. And we see all through the scripture of people going through hard times. And they're one of two responses. You either draw closer to God or you get driven away from God. And you have to relearn and get back into it. And you come back after you've done some stupid things usually. You come back to God. You, you repent. You're sorry. And he says, okay, let's try this trial all over again. And he'll send hardship our way to see if we're going to turn to him. And this is his pattern. This is what he does. Uh, he did it with the disciples. He did it with Moses. He did it with Joseph. You know, he did it with Daniel. Most of us don't go through the things like Joseph and Daniel did. Okay. Most of us have never been, okay, you're, you're, you're wonderful. You're, you're number one in your house. Let's make you a slave. Okay, you're, you're doing really good. You're raising up as a slave. Okay, now we'll make you a prisoner. You know, uh, what a life Dan, uh, Joseph had. <laughs> Daniel, okay, you're a young teenager. We're going to send you into captivity. We're going to teach you. You're going to be put in. You're going to be expected to become a Babylonian. Think like a Babylonian. Act like a Babylonian. And he says, no, I, got, I can't give up my God. Won't, won't eat the food that the king's providing. Won't... You know, won't give up his language that he wants to speak. You know, you know, doesn't become Babylonian, and God still raises him up. Now, he has a few issues. He gets thrown into a lion's den. He gets, you know, just a few issues that he has to go through. His, his, his friends get thrown into a fiery furnace. And I've always loved their answer when they were talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going, who can deliver you from my hand? And their answer was beautiful. Our God can deliver us. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will not bow to your idol. Is that the stand that most of us are willing to take? God can deliver me, but whether he does or doesn't, I am not going to do what's wrong. I'm going to honor God. And if I lose my life over it, I lose my life over it. If God delivers me out of it, then I get to stand up for God and, and be a testimony. And he does both. We may not have to go into a fire furnace, but he does both many times with us. We may feel like we're in a fiery furnace from some of the things we go through, but God says, are you willing to take your stand? And unfortunately, it is so easy to cave. You know, and everybody's looking at you, and you're standing all by yourself for God, and sometimes there's even Christians on that other side that aren't willing to take their stand for God. And you're going, God... What about them? And God says, don't worry about them. They failed this test. We're, we're now worried about you. What are you going to do? And it is hard sometimes to, to, to follow God, to open our mouth and share him when nobody else is opening their mouth and sharing him, to stand for him when everybody else is compromising. And this is what we're seeing in our day and age is many churches are compromising God's word. And I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm just saying many of them are taking the easy way out and compromising. And they'll have to answer to God. 
they'll have to answer to God when God says, well, why did you compromise here? Why did you give up my word here? Why did you allow this? Why did you allow that? We need to hold on to his word and say, God, I'm going to hold on to your word because holding on to God's word is not popular in this day and age. To call something a sin is not popular in this day and age. To say that God has standards is not popular in this day and age where there's no right and wrong in people's minds. And when you take a stand, people make fun of it. Our vice president is being made fun of because he said, I won't go out with another woman and be alone with them other than unless it's my wife. And he's getting all kinds of flack because that is so contrary to what the world believes. And yet the world will be decapitate somebody who mistreats the woman or man that they're alone with. Okay, we don't want you to do anything really to protect yourself, Mr. President, Vice President, but you know, if you got alone with her, we'd make sure that you paid the price for, for anything that might happen or that we think might have happened. You know, what a standard it is, you're, you lose no matter what when you're in the world. So at least take God's stand and say, I'm gonna make, an, I'm gonna make a stand. You know, Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman with lust. You know, and that was his stand. Not even, you know, his was not even just going alone with him. It was like, I'm not even going to look at them that way. Uh, a very high standard. And this is what God is saying. What is your standard? Are you walking a standard that is holy and righteous, or are you compromising the standard? And again, like I said, we've got entire churches and we've got entire denominations that are sacrificing God's standards. They'll have to answer to God. They're, they're probably not saved if, if the whole denomination is, is, is sacri you know, sacrificing it, but that's, they're still going to stand or fall before God. And our job is to stand and hold God's standard because heaviness and sorrow is coming. And I would rather have a hard time because I'm standing for God than to go before God and have him say, why didn't you stand for me? You know, I'd rather be judged by, by man and, and be, than to be judged by God. I want to stand before God and say, God, I did, the, I, I, I did it. I stood for you. And that is the messages that we, we t talk about people, the counsel we give people. It needs to be godly counsel, even when we may be the only one speaking it. Well, you know, God says that he hates divorce, so you need to really consider where you're at with this relationship that you're ready to throw out the window. You know, instead of the world, well, you know, you've really been mistreated. No, you haven't been loved for, for years. Just chuck the whole thing and go get, some, go get, a, go get a new person. Start all over, it's no big deal, you know. You haven't been treated well. And God says, stay, you know. And there's a blessing for that. Because ultimately, from what I have seen in my lifetime, a divorce does not fix the problems. Number one, you just take those problems into the next relationship and you have the bitterness toward the first relationship. And then you get divorced on that second one and now you have two bitter, bitter ones and you carry two, two bags and, and it just gets worse with each, each marriage. Okay, people who've been married the, you know, over and over again get out of it faster and faster in, in general. Uh, this is so critical. Do we do things God's way or not? To do things God's way is a lot harder at first. But the consequences aren't near as bad and in the long run 
doing things God's way is easier. Because there's not all the regret, there's not all the consequences for violating God's way. So it may seem like it's the hard way. Well, God, you know, if I stand your way, I'm going to be thrown in the fiery furnace or the den of lions or have my head cut off or lose all my friends or I'll be ostracized and God says, just stand for me. You know, God, if I do it the easy way, no, there won't be, won't be any problems. Won't have any testimony for you, won't have any problem, you know, and they'll know that I've compromised and they won't respect me, but, you know, we don't think that far down the road. Uh, standing with God in the long run is the better way to go. And we need to be able to really get to that point. God, help me to stand with you. Help me to make the right decisions to, to make those things. Verse 3 says, God says, I will camp against, against you round about and lay sieges against you with a mound and I will raise up forts against you. So God says, and notice these, it says, God says, I will distress you in verse three, 2. In verse 3, it says, I will camp against, I will lay siege, and I will raise up forts. God himself actively opposes those who aren't in a relationship with him. Now, sometimes we think he's opposing us when he's given us trials, but these people, when we walk away from him, he opposes us. There is no peace. There is no comfort because we're not where we belong. And God says, I'm going to raise up the, the battles, battlements. I'm going to raise up the siege instruments, and I'm going to batter the walls down. Now, if God's going to batter the walls down, they're going to come down. All right? You might succeed in, in, the, in, the, in the world's attack on you. But the good news for us is if we're hiding in God, nothing is going to batter down him. If we're building up our own walls... God himself is going to batter down those walls. He's going to say, no, you're not going to protect yourself with your rules, your way of doing things. I'm going to destroy your way of going. And this is true even of non-Christians. So often we think, oh, these non-Christians, they've got everything going for them. Well, if it really was true that non-Christians had everything going for them, why did they finally start looking for God or commit suicide and and get into all these uh, drugs and alcohol because everything is not going for them. God is destroying their walls as well. They keep building up these walls of defense and God says, I'm just knocking them down. I want you to come to me. Oh, you think that getting stuff is all it? Okay, you got it. Now I'm going to knock it down. It's not going not to satisfy. Oh, you think being popular is going to do it? Well, let's let you get popular. Let's knock it down. Let's make you wonder, you know, do they like me because of me or do they like me because of who I am? And that's the problem most popular people have. Am I liked because they like me or they just like what they think of me? The, the actor, do they like me or do they like the character that I'm playing? You know, and I think it's funny listening to people who are all into actors because they hardly ever talk about the actor, the, person. the person themselves. They always talk about the roles they play. It's like, you really think that person's that way? You know, you really think that's who they are. You, know, you don't even know this person and you're, you're idolizing them. You're lifting them up. You don't know who they are. Let's look behind the scenes. Oh, you mean you, you really like that drunk who's, who's, you know, blasted most of the time and has trouble getting their lines out because they're, they're so wasted? You, that's who you're idolizing? You know, 
or that person who appears so secure on, the, on, his, on their roles and is very insecure in real life and won't open their mouth or, or is afraid of everything because they don't know who they are because they're so used to play, playing somebody else. And they really don't know who they are because all they ever do is play somebody else. We need to be very careful what, what we're lifting up, what we're glorifying. And God says, I'm going to knock down the walls. They're going to know they need me, which is his whole purpose with us. If we start losing track of our need for him, he's going to say, let me uh, give you a little bit of trouble so that you know that you need me, that you recognize who you are. And this is something that we get very problematic with sometimes when we get a little big-headed. Okay, God, you know, I'm doing really good. I'm, I'm, I'm growing. This is happening. Uh, and God says, oh, okay, you don't think it's me, so let me show you. And I've said this over and over. Sometimes God pulls back his hand of blessing from us for just a moment, leads us into the shadow of the valley of death, where we're not supposed to fear evil. But he says, okay, uh, here's your test. Here's your test. You're by yourself for a few minutes. Who, who, what are you going to trust in? And this is something that is taught to teachers. You know, when you test the students, you're, you're quiet during that period of testing. When God tests us, he's quiet. It almost feels like, God, where are you? And God says, trust. Trust what you know. Uh, Chuck Smith always said, never let go of what you know in the darkness for what you don't know. When you're in the middle of the trial, just hold on to what you know. <laughs> and say, God, you've said... And that's one of my greatest things. And this is why I say so often, when I go through trials, I just quote back to God, uh, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. And then I'll also continue, God, you're in charge. You know what you're doing. And you're sovereign. I may not understand any of this, but I know one thing. You're in charge. And you know, there's great peace in that. Now, Am I always perfect in my remembrance of that? No. <laughs> there are sometimes problems that hit me that I forget for a moment, but I almost always come back fairly quickly, God, you're in charge and you have a reason. And that gives so much peace and it allows us to go through, when you really have something like that to grab hold of, you grab hold of it and say, God, I don't have much else, but I have this. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, what a beautiful picture that we have. We are saved by grace, not by works. Now, the problem with us as, as Christians is we grow. Sometimes we forget that we're not, that we don't do anything that God says, oh, you're just so wonderful. I am just so, I am just so pleased that I have you. You are just so wonderful above all comprehension. And yet, sometimes we think that way. You know, we may not actually say, but we get thinking, you know, God, you're really lucky to have me. You know, I go to church every, every, every time the doors are open. I'm giving my tithes. I'm, I'm reading my word. You know, you're just so lucky you have me, God. And God's saying, well, you wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for me in the first place. And I'm the one that grew you to get to where you're at. And he just backs off a little bit and says, okay, let's see how long you can last without my protection. And the wolves start gathering around us. He, he may not let the wolves actually come and tear us up, but 
you know, if you've ever been out in the wilderness around the wild animals, sometimes it can get pretty scary. Your imagination can make it worse. You know, uh, I can't imagine being someplace where there's lions. You know, real lions. You know, not the mountain lion, but you know, African lions that are out there to to hunt people. You know, that would be kind of terrifying if you're not in the right right place. But you know, we want to be careful that we do not get to the place where we think too much of ourselves. Because God has a way to bring us down and humble us. And he wants us to stay meek. He wants us to stay humble and just say, God, thank you. And not get big-headed. I always thank God for him having me and his family. I'm so honored that he wants me with his family. And that's the way it should be. Just be greatly honored. God, you want, you want me? Yeah. Do you know me? <laughs> well, that's just it. You know, if we really truly understand who we are, it almost is that, God, why? Why would you want me? You know, uh, you know God, you know what I think. You know how I, how I want to act. You know how I struggle with serving you. And you choose me. Now let's take it back even further. He died for us while we were his enemy. We had done nothing to deserve Jesus dying for us. Nothing at all. But even as a Christian, nothing we do is going to be something that deserves his love and attention. It may be something that is pleasurable for him. Oh, I'm glad you're doing these things, but, in, but he's not going to love us more. All right, well, yeah, you've really got your life put together. You know, I love you just so much more because you, of where you're, no. He loved us completely before we were saved. He doesn't love us anymore when we start following him. And even better yet, he doesn't love us any less when we fall. We really need to be able to grab hold of that. The grace of God is so wonderful. Undeserved gifts. And he says, I just am giving you, I'm giving you all of me and clothing you in me so that you can stand before the Father in perfection. We need to really grab hold of that. When we stand before God the Father, we're standing before him clothed in Jesus Christ's righteousness and all he sees is perfection. Right this moment. Not in the future when we're glorified. But we got saved and we were justified, declared perfect, and clothed in Christ so that when we stand before the Father, he sees, wow, this is my perfect child. Now, we know that we're not the perfect child, but that's what he sees. He sees a perfect child because he sees the righteousness of Christ. What a blessing we have and the way God looks at us. Now, we know no matter how good we get, we are not perfect. We make all kinds of steps and, and blunders and, and bad decisions. But God looks at us and says, Ah, oh, look, my, my, my children, they're so wonderful. They're so perfect. You know, and this is one of the reasons I like that in Zechariah, when Satan comes against the high priest Joshua, and God basically 
just says, one moment. He tells the angel, okay, clean, clean him up, put new garments on him, give a, clean him up, put a new, new hat on him. Then he turns to Satan, okay, what was your problem? That is a picture of how God sees us. We show up, we've got the soiled garments on, and he says, okay, let's put Christ on you. Okay, Satan, what was, what was your problem with this child of mine? Nothing. <laughs> I have nothing to say anymore. <laughs> you know, just a few minutes ago, I had plenty to say about them, but I have nothing to say about them now. And yet, we as individuals will dare to criticize one of God's children to him, to others, to, to their face. We really need to start looking and saying, this is God's child. They're perfect. I may have trouble with them. I may have issues with what they're doing, but God says they're perfect. How would that change the way we treat one another if we truly started seeing each other the way God sees us, the way God sees them? Now, we may not be best friends with them. That may never happen. But to speak edifying words and loving words to them should become easier and easier if we really want to see people the way God sees them. And that's part of that love that comes out. Wow, God, you love me. Maybe I can love them. You know, we love him because he first loved us, but we love each other because he first loved us. He shows us what love is. And we're then able to take that love and pass it on to others because of his love. We're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this night. Lord, teach us to trust you more. You have a plan. You have a, have a goal for us. Teach us to love you more and to care and to listen to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.